Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning. Today is Tuesday, April 19th, and welcome to this month's EM Lens and Look Through podcast. I am your host, Damian Sassauer, and today we are joined by the legendary Mr. Mark Franklin, CIO and founder of MSO Asset Management, and his colleague, the incomparable Jens Neustadt, co-deputy CIO of that same venerable institution. A real privilege to have you here, gentlemen. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Let's get right into it. Uh, Mark, you started your career at Chemical Bank in the 1970s before moving to John Goodfriend Solomon Brothers, where you helped build the legendary investment banks, EM Capital Markets, and Prop Trading Divisions, along with some other colleagues. And in so doing, you were intimately involved across EM during both the pre- and post-Brady arrows, navigating turbulence in countries like Mexico during the 94 tequila crisis, Thailand during the Asian currency crisis, and of course, Russia during the uh, crisis of 1999, 1998, just to name a few. Um, I'm wondering, can you walk our audience through the evolution of emerging markets over that period? And you know, what are the most important lessons learned? What experiences really form the foundation for your approach at MSO Asset Management. Thank you, Damien, and it's good to be here uh, to speak with you. Um, when I started my career, uh, obviously the bond market of emerging markets didn't exist. It was a loan market. Um, it was the effectively recycling of loans coming out of a period that, in some ways you can look at today's events, uh, the disruption in the energy market in the early 1970s, which created uh, a lot of inflation, but there was a lot of petrodollars to be recycled. Latin America in particular, some of the Asian countries were borrowers of capital and banks began lending and they lent a lot of money. Um, and then as we moved into the early 80s, you saw that they couldn't really pay it back. The most famous uh, event was the August 1982, you know, Mexico, Angel Gurria showing up at the New York Fed and saying, I got a problem. Can't pay you. Um, and, you know, it was, I was fortunate to be in the markets at those time. I was fortunate to be able to, to be a witness to see what was happening and also the changes that took place. Uh, when I moved over to the Solomon Brothers in the mid-90s, uh, we started the process of beginning to educate the clients of Solomon Brothers about what were emerging markets, what were these countries, what were the assets involved at that time. They were loans. And we began, you know, effectively loan trading of one country to another. We were intermediating between bank to bank. You know, we had one bank that wanted to get out of Argentina, another bank that wanted to get in Mexico, and we were doing the swap. Um, and uh, during that period, you know, it was a fairly laborious uh, process of documentation. Um, it wasn't freely traded. And as the uh, market continued to move on, one of the things we did at Solomon Brothers is we tried to price it. I think, one of, you know, if you look at what Solomon was doing back then, it was always trying to make sure there was actually transparency in the market and people understood capital markets. So my colleague, Stephen Dyser and I started pricing up the securities of the loans of emerging markets. And we would send it to the likes of Bloomberg, um, you know, Euro uh, institutional investor, the various magazines that were following the market, the accountants, and the banks weren't really pleased about this because their assets were at par. 
Um, and we were saying they're not really at par assets. And the great event and watershed of the beginning of emerging markets was Citi's April 1987 decision to write off 30% of their exposure to emerging markets. That was the beginning of the market. And at that point, you then had your first security in the market, which was called an Aztec bond. It was issued by Mexico, I believe it was 1988. In you know, Solomon wisdom, we decided to analyze the bond, and we thought the <laughs> bond was not a good bond. So we advised all our investors this was a really poor bond. Uh, we didn't ingratiate ourselves with the bankers at Solomon Brothers or the Mexican government because they were saying, wait, how can you criticize our bond? And we pointed out that it wasn't really good for investors. Uh, interestingly enough, they bought it back pretty short order after that. And then you have the very famous Brady program. He was Treasury Secretary at the time. He wanted to make sure that the banks had a way to move the assets that were at that point impaired, written down off the balance sheets, and they created the famous Brady bond market. And the Brady bond market really was taking loans, converting them to securities, and at the time, adding treasury collateral to both the interest uh, and, and principal, depending on the country. Um, and as that market began to uh, progress and you had a bond market to trade, uh, end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, you then started seeing activities in local markets. The most active local market at the time was actually a treasury bill market in Mexico. It was the CETES market, and it was a big market. And it started attracting the capital of the Fidelities and a lot of these institutional investors that really had not been involved in the market. And then probably the most, what I call, next important event in, in, in emerging markets was the December 1994 tequila crisis, Mexico devalued, which was a shock to the system. And at that point, not only did the newly printed Brady bonds, but also the securities of Mexico and the domestic capital market, it became sort of a volatile period. So right. the 90s was accentuated with certain defaults of loans, Russia 98, uh, certain currency crises, Thailand uh, 97, which precipitated in various other uh, Asian currencies having a problem. I just happened to be, you know, fortunately, I was generally around these events. I happened to be in the Thai Central Bank on July 4th, 1997, oh, when, wow. they, when they devalued wow. and started getting, obviously, the calls from sophisticated investors and, and my colleagues at Solomon Brothers about, hey, what, how do we think about it? What are we doing? And it's also in that period that I was traveling, um, you know, began traveling extensively, not just through Asia, through the various markets that are now pretty big, sophisticated capital markets. Um, but that's, you know, kind of in a synopsis of sort of how it progressed. Well, let's shift over to you, Jens. I mean, we can't begin any conversation here without talking about, obviously, Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. It has leveled large losses on emerging market fixed income investors since these sanctions went into effect, and it looks like things are only getting worse. I'm wondering if you could help our audience understand where bondholders currently sit and whether or not you think there is a potential or an uh, imminent potential, I guess, that the country is actually going to default on its dollar on, on its dollar bonds, on its uh, external credit. And, and I guess to the next level, is it even possible that we could see a run on the ruble and on the Russian banking system? Thank you very much. I think that uh, the mark to market losses on foreign investors have largely occurred I think uh, the large benchmark providers haven't been shy in quickly exiting Russia and maybe one or two other countries out of their benchmarks. So at this stage, if you are in local Russian markets, you're not getting out. You're, you're stuck. It's no longer in your benchmark, however. So there are some uh, 
active tracking errors if you're a benchmarked investor that needs to be considered. But I think the losses are by now well known. If you were fortunate enough to see these things happening, or if you thought this was a material risk, you did have a window. I mean, uh, the U.S. wasn't shy in warning those that wanted to listen that something was happening. The buildup was also occurring. Uh, we can all discuss the wisdom of doing what uh, President Putin decided to do. But ultimately, when it comes to your question about is there going to be a sovereign default in Russia, it's not about its willingness to pay or its ability to pay. It's sanctions. And uh, to some extent, I think that's under Russia's control. What do they want to achieve on the ground? And uh, that comes at a cost. And uh, the cost is going to be that the sanction will make it impossible for them to service their dollar debt. And hence, there will be a sovereign default. But it's very different than any other default that we've seen during the history that Mark uh, laid out. This is probably the first sanctioned default that I'm aware of, and therefore is, is uh, in a completely different chapter of your history books. I would also say that the Russians have made clear that they will do their best to service their debt as far as they can. And a number of uh, Russian sovereign instruments do have an alternative currency clause. You could be paid back in Russian ruble. A lot of investors were not aware about that particular clause in your bond contract. And it goes back to one of Mark's observation, which is you got to know what your bond contract says and how can you get repaid. I think uh, one emerging market crisis after another have at least stressed to us the importance of knowing in great detail what your debt instruments say. And it's not only in emerging markets. I know, for example, in Greece, that was a big uh, um, potential opportunity for us. So to your question on Russia, is there going to be a sovereign bond default? Well, there's still time to avoid it. One would hope that there is a resolution on the ground, but I doubt it. Uh, in terms of what will it mean for the broader markets, unfortunately, a lot of the losses have been incurred. Uh, so it's hard for me to see this as a big driver for global financial markets at this stage. On the Russian ruble, I think that's really a decision for the central bank. It's at this point, I would say, um, a market that has been split in two, offshore and onshore. And the onshore market is under their control. I also think that they have done a reasonable job in preventing uh, systemic contagion within Russia. So this is a manageable process. It's certainly not a desirable one. You know, Mark, I mean, uh, Jens makes an interesting uh, an interesting observation in Russia's sense that there is a distinct difference this time around. The country has both the ability and the willingness to pay, yet structurally speaking, it may not be able to do so. You know, one of your core tenets at EMSO is to focus on the micro, you know, to understand just that. And so, you know, we all know there are other factors in emerging markets which can indeed cloud such an analysis. One such example is when it comes to graft. And so for our viewers, our listeners here, I'm wondering if you could help us better understand, you know, how do you measure and account for graft when investing across EM, you know, especially those with, with weak corruption controls? And, you know, we can talk about a number of them like um, uh, Lebanon and Venezuela and Mozambique, et cetera. But, you know, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Obviously, sanctions are another, so feel free to, uh, to uh, build on that as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, just about this following up on Yen said, I mean, one of the things we did as a, one of the decisions we made as a firm is we were unexposed to the Russian uh, situation 
partly because the value wasn't there and you had this extreme tail risk. We did not think Putin would invade. We didn't understand what he ultimately would gain versus what he would lose. I still today, when you look at the facts of what has happened, it's hard to understand what did he gain. Uh, He might have expanded NATO with Finland and uh, Sweden, and he may have um, he he may have um, incurred more armaments showing up in the Baltics and in some of the NATO uh, eastern uh, corridors of of Poland and Romania, et cetera. Um, In terms of the question on sort of corruption, I mean, actually, Russia's sort of right at the top of that. We had a very famous senator who used to refer to the country as relatively, you know, small economy. It's a medium-sized European economy in terms of GDP. He referred to it as um, it was basically a corrupt, poorly run gas station with a hell of a lot of nukes. Is it really that different today? It is, but that that observation from uh, uh, Senator McCain was still applicable in some respects. I think on the the corruption side, first of all, the assets that we typically invest in are in publicly traded markets. They're international euro bonds. They're the treasury bills of these countries. There's not corruption at that level. These are on open exchanges. Uh, currencies are openly traded for a large part. So you're not you're not you know you're not faced with that. Even at the corporate level of dealing with a quasi sovereign, you don't. It doesn't it doesn't come at you in terms of oh, is there a problem uh, with uh, individual actors there? I mean, there are, clearly there are countries and there are situations like a particular refinance bond in Mozambique that had hairs, but you got to be aware of that. I mean, one of the basic tenets of emerging markets investing, which I've always said for the last 40 odd years, a a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. You really got to get into the weeds. You need to understand the legal of the instrument. You need to understand the technicals of the instrument. You need to understand what I call the politics of the economics. And the politics of economics is applicable to all global capital markets today. You know, what are governments doing? Why do they do what they do? What's the utility function of why they do what they do? And how does that reprice securities? It's real important. Um, And it's something that we use consistently. Um, So, yeah, our, our radar is quite wide and aware of of complications. I would also say that although ESG has now come into the fore of investing, a lot of emerging markets in retrospect have some lower ESG scores, partly because of hydrocarbons, partly because of probably corruption. But at the same time, there are efforts and there is transparency going on. And I think, you know, when you look at what's happening in the world, even the digitization of assets and the digitization of currencies or the adoption of of uh, if you will cryptocurrencies in the case of El Salvador well that's pretty transparent stuff it's blockchain you can't really hide from that so that's actually a good thing so you could see actually improving situations with respect to the question of um, of integrity um, and um, and corruption amazing well listen I mean we can't talk about emerging markets without at least pivoting to China in some way, shape, or form. And so, Jens, you know, we all know the challenges China's facing. Um, you know, obviously, there's no question in the economy's remarkable evolution over the past 30 years. Indeed, China GDP has already overtaken that of the EU, and many expect the nation's economic output to double over the next 15 years. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on Beijing's big crackdown on, on technology, the wave of property sector defaults, and obviously the country's pursuits of common prosperity? I mean, in an environment where many large investors remain on the sidelines, given the limited transparency therein with China and concerns regarding rule of law, 
you know, how do you, how does EMSO approach China? First of all, one should recognize the tremendous progress that China has achieved here over the last uh, 30-odd years. Its entry into WTO was a game changer not only for China, but for the world. I would say global inflationary pressures probably was lower for almost 20 years because of uh, a supply chain being created that now we are trying to unwind and uh, trying to almost uh, recreate in a slightly smarter way than where where it was before China uh, entered as part of the global economy. So I think there's a lot that China did right and that the global economy uh, benefited from to to uh, um, make over a billion citizens lift them out of poverty and then being able to make them part of middle class, travel the world. I mean, I think we haven't really fully, even at this stage, incorporated China in the global economy. And we can see that now when it's struggling with its zero COVID strategy, it has immediate impact across the world, including travel, global supply chains, uh, etc. So then it comes back to the decisions, as you mentioned, the push for common prosperity, uh, going after individual sectors, that there's a real cost to what they're doing now. They're basically saying we're willing to give up economic growth for political objectives. And that trade-off, I don't think the Chinese fully understand uh, how uh, complicated it can be. We can look at what they're doing to the property sector. It's uh, the most important part of the Chinese economy in terms of driving growth, yet they're actively going after individual companies, trying to uh, deal with what they consider, I would say, uh, some uh, artificial credit increases, credit growth that needs to be controlled. So... When it comes to uh, the Chinese growth story medium term, I think we have some real challenges ahead. Uh, But near term, it's all about how to deal with the zero COVID strategy. Uh, Medium and longer term, it's about what's the role of the Chinese state in the economy and that of the private sector. They're clearly revisiting that and it will have global uh, implications. But I think also Mark here has an interesting perspective in terms of how it works in, uh, in the historical context. Thanks, Jens. I mean, I think that, as Jens said, I mean, 30 years ago, traveling to to China, you know, there were very few cars on the road. Uh, Stock market was changed, not manually. I mean, excuse me, manually, not automatically, uh, with people sitting on hills with binoculars looking at the changes of the prices. That's 30 that's 30 years ago. Uh, It's phenomenal what the country has done. Um, And I think some of the challenges they have besides this question of, of, uh, you know, distribution of wealth, if you will, which is what I think the prosperity initiative is, is that, you know, they do have activity in the capital markets. They have an actively traded local bond market, an actively traded currency, but they also have a huge bond sector. And the one that's really been in the, the fore right now is the property sector. You know, you had $200 billion of bonds that on a notional basis were worth par nine months ago. You've wiped out probably 120 to $130 billion on a mark-to-market basis without a tremendous shifting of that risk. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's reliant ultimately on government policy. It's because nobody has been able to really travel there for several years. It's difficult to really ascertain the ultimate 
uh, move on government policy. The sector, as you know, employs a large percentage of of, of Chinese in global pro- in property within China, as well as you know the general activity of the economy estimated at least fifteen percent of GDP. It's a big sector. So for us, you know, the, you know, we watch very carefully what will be able to potentially be various opportunities as you have consolidation in that industry and you have winners and you have losers. Um, and, you know, that that, you know, attracts our attention. But um, but it's a big, big change over the last that last 30 years. Well, let's, you know, let's also talk about, you know, some of the changes we're seeing in Latin America, specifically as it relates to, uh, you know, the politics of the moment, right? So, you know, this has been, um, well, it's no longer been a benign year. I mean, we've had some changes, I mean, certainly in South Korea, but, you know, the, the election calendar is heating up, gentlemen. And, you know, um, for me, we have Colombia, we have the Philippines, we have Brazil on tap this year. Um, I'm curious, you know, do we see some of the sort of populist, nationalist, uh, you know, kind of pivot that we're seeing in places, for example, like Chile and Peru, sort of, um, you know, kind of spilling over into other markets. And, you know, I'm wondering, you know, which market should we be most focused on from a investor standpoint as the year progresses? I mean, I think you have to once again, you have to get into the details. I mean, there's a major election in Colombia. I know Bloomberg just recently hosted the president of Colombia. And, you know, they're about to go through a pretty interesting change. And it's going to be a populist change. Um you know, it gets back to this whole question of distribution of wealth globally. I think that's why you see these populist movements. It will be encouraged by higher inflation rates. It'll be encouraged by, you know, growth, which was originally disrupted by the pandemic and now in some respects uh, disrupted by geopolitics in the case of of the oil situation with Russia. Um, And that will lead to, you know, potentially less orthodox or some unorthodox moves by by different countries, depending on the the the, the mark of their populist um, regime. That creates opportunity. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, and it's once again, you have to understand what I call the politics of the economics in these countries to be able to ascertain price and understand the value of their domestic capital markets, rates and currencies, and their international capital markets, principally bonds. And that's what we do. So we look at this as as an interesting period, not a period that is necessarily going to be torturous. I think it'll just create various opportunities because there will be mispricings. People misprice politics. And that's important to really think about as you get into the economic data and you get into the sort of understanding the decision process. But Jens, you, I think you, you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, I think for the market implications that matters is this uh, leftist slash populist that the market has seen before. Clearly, uh, Brazil, when it comes to what looks like almost a walkover for Lula coming back, if anything, is probably seen as a stabilizer. Uh, We are going uh, from um, President Bolsonaro, which clearly introduced uh, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uh, policy volatility, to a a known uh, center-left, but was ultimately a pragmatist. I mean, we talked about the historical implications. Lula 2002 inherited a crisis, and uh, yes, he benefited from a very strong commodity price backdrop. Well, looks a little bit similar here. I think, however, that uh, Mark's point that we're going through a period where clearly COVID has not really increased the tolerance of the populace uh, for change, inflation, 
poverty, unemployment, it's a volatile mix. But if you then look at um, how did the countries respond? Well, Chile actually had a lot of fiscal buffers, right? Uh, they tried to respond through fiscal stimulus. Uh, we've seen a response from a number of emerging markets that has been very non-traditional, be it from fiscal or central banks. And uh, when it comes to Colombia, they've tried too, but they didn't have the same amount of buffers. Peru, uh, we saw the leftist change last year, same in Chile. The market sold off going into these events, but quickly stabilized afterwards. Colombia, probably will see something similar. People are, for the first time here, taking some bets off the table. Uh, they are prepared for this event. They've seen the story before last year. But I don't fundamentally expect uh, Petro, if he does win the election, there is certainly some suggestions that the polls are tightening. So it's not a foregone conclusion yet. But uh, I think the market will stabilize and, and move on because Colombia has a better external environment. Well, for our audience, it's very important that you know we are here at our 731 Lexington Avenue uh, offices, and we are in a wonderful conference room. And next to us is President Van Duque of Colombia, who is here on Monday to ring the New York Stock Exchange bell. Um, they're, um, they're, 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 they're delivering a green taxonomy for the country, all good stuff, all sustainable and ESG uh, fun stuff for, uh, for you to look into. But, you know, let's head a little bit north. Let's look at El Salvador, because... They're preparing the regulatory framework, if I'm not mistaken, to issue uh, Bitcoin bonds. I mean, Bitcoin bonds. So, you know, for me, we can't help but respect the potential for decentralized ledger technology to reshape the way households and companies alike sort of interact and transact. But from a fiduciary standpoint, how can fund managers justify investing in a country whose citizens pay for food utilities and other household essentials in crypto? You know, I'm wondering, Mark, if you could just help us better understand what exactly is going on there. Thank you, Damien. I mean, I'm not a crypto <laughs> expert, but what I would say, uh, blockchain's real. And I think blockchain technology is going to be, at times, a disruptive technology throughout capital markets. Uh, I don't think one can put their head in the sand and say it's not going to move forward. Therefore, there will be uh, cryptocurrencies and even potentially Bitcoin uh, could do well over, over a period of time or currencies that are associated with it. I mean, obviously, it has to get its arms around the environmental question of the cost of creating it. Um, but, you know, why would a country... Adopted. I think if you look in the United States, there are several mayors that are saying, hey, we will let allow real estate transactions to happen in cryptocurrency. Um, you know, it is beginning to be adopted, um, you know, much more broadly than just some smaller, um, complicated countries. But I think a lot of countries which have had difficult times with their currency, either being pegged to the dollar or associated with a dollar euro block in terms of the trade weighted basis, that it's, it's, it's there's, they're basically asking the question, is this a better store of value? I, I kind of don't blame them. So I view what Ecuador, I mean, excuse me, what El Salvador are doing is, is interesting. It's curious. I'm not sure I'll buy the Bitcoin bond, but we will pay attention to it. The first thing we would do is what are the finances of the country? Can it even pay you, Right. Does it have the ability to pay and can it pay you? Forget that it's Bitcoins or it's dollars or it's local currency. The first question is how economically sound is the, is the issuer? And that's what we would look at first. But I do actually welcome it because I think it's a process that's only going to increase globally. Well, you know, I mean, you can't help but respect over your career, Mark, I mean, and Jens as well. I mean, the the 
insatiable search for alpha in all elements of the emerging markets. And and today we see investors moving into less liquid areas of the market, you know, such as private credit. And I know EMSO has expanded its reach into the world of emerging market private credit. And so, you know, it's relatively opaque. You know, we don't see a lot of data on it. We don't know the type of returns that private credit can generate in emerging markets. I'm wondering if you could just share for our audience a little bit more about it, your approach to it, and what sort of return expectations, um, you know, investors could expect from it. Thank you. I mean, we have been involved in private credit for almost four and a half years. Uh, We've been investing in a variety of areas, uh, Latin America, uh, Central Europe, um, and uh, Africa, Middle East. And it really is different than the private credit market that we think of in sort of what I'd call G10 land, which tends to be lending into uh, private equity type transactions. In emerging markets, because international banks are not as large and as present in the domestic capital market, and sometimes even the sophistication of local uh, banks are not as advanced, there are actually very interesting streams of capital and investments available. Um, There are receivables that one can structure uh, in a variety of countries that, in fact, in some cases, are the ones that we've been involved in are full faith and credit of the domestic uh, capital market. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, There are others that are, you know, issuance into, you know, developing businesses. We're actively involved in a car uh, ride-sharing operation in Africa that's gone quite pan-African quite quick. Uh, You know, the NPLs in Central Europe, which in the end of the day or in Brazil, which are just incredibly interesting securities. So it's a part of the capital markets that is less um, followed by by traditional financial entities. We use the same principles that we've used in all our investing. You know, who is the issuer? You know, what are the streams of capital? Can they pay you? What's the rule of law that you're dealing with? You know, how do you know, how do you frame it? So, Jens, you know, relative to history, you know, foreign positioning in emerging markets, specifically local assets, is quite frankly, it's exceptionally tight right now. Uh, Light, sorry. Um, You know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on flows as we go through the end of the year. You know, I mean, this has been quite a dynamic environment. We know that. Um, You know, how should investors position? You know, which strategies are best positioned to outperform in the coming environment? And when I say strategies, you know, I'm EM local, EM credit, forget about sort of the high beta. I mean, what what do you think is going to work here? Is it going to be greater differentiation across sectors, uh, across countries? Is it going to be taking a hedged approach maybe on the FX side or or is it maybe even going into equities? Um, so I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about positioning, about the strategy that you think is best positioned to outperform through the end of the year. Thank you. Just taking one step back, I would say the investment case for emerging markets was always about diversification. And the question has been, has it delivered that? If you're a benchmark investor in hard currency bonds, the good news is that 50 to 60% of your benchmark is now investment grade. So yes, they, they have grown, they have improved, their fundamentals have gotten better. But it has also meant that your correlation with, let's say, US treasuries has also increased. So the diversification benefits have gone down as, frankly, emerging markets have become more mainstream. So you have to go to where are the next emerging markets? Where are the emerging markets that offered you the idiosyncratic opportunities of the 90s and the 2000s today? It's not Mexico. It's, it's, it's not a lot of the Eastern European countries. Maybe they pay you U.S. Treasury plus 100 basis points. So they're not going to give you that diversification. It can't. It's become a, a different asset class. I mean, I think it's the private sector. It's the private uh, 
credit that we're finding in Mexico and Central Europe. So as these countries have matured, again, is right, they become quite developed on that front, you know, in the case of, say, Mexico. But we've found some very interesting private credit investments in that country because that's where the the opportunity sets is. So you have to go down and look at the, the, the whole capital market to ascertain it. But um, So then the next step comes um... – what about the allocation to emerging market and emerging market fixed income, which is what we do? Uh, strategically, um, developed market institutional investors are still under allocated. So where can they get that diversification? You mentioned local currency. Local currency, clearly, we've seen uh, a move away from pegged exchange rate, your freely floating uh, exchange rates. And and I think this is often forgotten. You have new entrants into the benchmark. So this year, in the beginning of the year, we had Egypt joining the GBIM. Uh, Ukraine was going to. Clearly, that has been at least delayed. Uh, India is uh, probably a this year story. So you have more and more currencies on the menu, more and more local fixed income markets that you can invest in. That will increase your diversification opportunities. And I think it will attract capital to this market. Uh, Russia is a setback, clearly. But again, we talked about it earlier. I don't think it's uh, something that says something more broadly about the asset class. I think it is, uh, if anything, and I hope that's correct, an aberration. So um, therefore, what kind of investment a strategy will be able to take advantage of it. I think it is going back to one of Mark's observation earlier. It's being able to decide who are the winners and who are the losers. You need to be nimble. Being benchmark or very closely following the benchmark, unfortunately, in this kind of volatile market, we have uh, defaults. We have these accidents. And if you're following the benchmark, you're simply going to be exposed to every single one of them. And I think if you have a, a solid bottom-up framework that allows you to at least avoid some of the landmines. I think that's the step, uh, the right direction to head in. It also means that you can pick up these stories, these frontier emerging markets that open up for foreign investors in a new currency early, well before it gets included in the benchmark, because that takes a number of years. We got involved into Ukraine with, with the rise of President Zelensky, his election, and that's uh, now several years ago. So that's where the opportunities are. You want to have discretion. I think you want to be unconstrained uh, from benchmarks to to the extent possible, uh, as long as your investors agree with you. Amazing. Well, I mean, we're, you know, getting to the 11th hour here. And, you know, before I lose you both, I just have to, you know, ask you this question, you know, 2019, the pandemic hit, um, you know, we still are obviously feeling the reverberations of it. For me, the the biggest surprise, I think, you know, that I just didn't see coming was the innovative nature of central banks and most specifically the Fed as it relates to, you know, keeping the economy humming along amid the depths of the crisis. Right. And so, you know, I have to ask you, Mark and Jens, um, you know, what surprised you the most? What you know, what really didn't you see coming, you know, from the pandemic and what have you really learned from it? Clearly, the pandemic sort of brought into question the concept of globalization. I think you're, you're definitely seeing that a lot of countries and a lot of uh, companies are having to rethink how they really want to handle that concept of globalization in terms of where they produce their goods and who they sell their goods to. So I think there'll be near, you know, near, uh, there'll be investments happening nearer to home in terms of providing some of the supply chain uh, processes. Um, equally, you know, uh, the pandemic has been horrific on so many levels, but on the emerging market level, it's on many levels, you know, you don't hear a lot of 
horrific stories in a number of the emerging markets. Partly it's the age of the population. Um, as we know from the empirical data that the younger you are, yes, you can be infected by it, but you're less vulnerable um, depending on your age. And we, we've actually witnessed that in a number of the data that has come out of, out of the emerging markets. Um, but clearly, I think it made a lot of countries sort of reassess where they're producing their goods, how they're producing their goods, who they're selling their goods to. And that in itself is, is interesting. And it's also, from our perspective, um, has, has created some opportunities. The other thing is the capital markets did slow down. So in emerging markets, you've had a, a rise in food prices, a rise in energy prices. We had our first country announce that they're defaulting yesterday, Sri Lanka, because why? Food and, and oil has gone up and therefore, hey, got to feed the people and got to get the energy in. So that in itself isn't a horrible situation. In fact, that is a situation that we've been monitoring, which we'll now probably start considering from an investment perspective. Same thing with Ukraine. I think, you know, Ukraine is going through a horrific time right now. It will end. I mean, Ukraine is not going to disappear. It will be a question of, is there a part to the GDP that stay with the country or not? But even if you get into that depth of what I call the economic analysis, it's probably not that great a proportion of GDP. It's a country that will have tremendous goodwill. And it'll be a situation, actually, as an agrarian and as a as a tech uh, society and and and, and country. It, it I, I'm actually will be optimistic once this war is finished, um, and I think that will also be you know there's some interesting opportunities out here, um, and it's partly a result of I think ultimately the pandemic. But Jens, I think you had some observations. Yeah, just uh, Damien, you brought up a good point, which was the how did the central banks react to this? I think for me, the biggest surprise is that QE is no longer something that uh, only the G3 central banks can engage in. I think the pandemic showed us it's gone global. The emerging market banks that have actually engaged in very, very similar policy, even if they didn't bring their interest rates down to zero while still seeing their uh, exchange rates relatively well behaved, was for me a major surprise. So I think it has created another set of tools and toolboxes for countries I never never imagined would be able to use them. So we may we may have to pay the inflationary consequences of those decisions, but uh, so far, not really. And uh, it's been a remarkable uh, tool that is being used uh, much more widely than I ever expected. Gentlemen, thank you so very much for sharing your thoughts, sharing your views with us here today. And to our audience, thank you for uh, for your time and your continued interest. Keep safe and keep moving forward. 